Hello and welcome to another episode of Lord Speaker's Corner. Manus Kennedy of the Shaws, or otherwise Helena, my friend. Welcome to this Lord Speaker's podcast. Uh, Both of us come from the west of Scotland. So could you give me a flavour of your background and what has driven you to where you are? Well, I I was brought up in the south side of Glasgow, a a Catholic family, um, working class. Um, My dad was um, uh, worked in the the newspapers. He was a dispatch hand, you know, where the newspapers would come off the presses and there would be, you know, they would bundle them up and uh, put the newspapers into vans to distribute her all around Scotland. And that was what he did. Um, He was a trade unionist and he ended up being what was called the father of the chapel, the person who was a representative of the people doing that job. And so in our household, um, there was a certain um, uh, political understanding that, um, it's, you know, life could be tough for ordinary folk and getting the law to, for example, when people had industrial injuries and so on, my father would be trying to get them compensation. And so the, the idea that um, law was not something that came easily um, and comfortably to ordinary people was something that we were well aware of at home. I, my mother was an incredible woman. She was a real person. She did a lot of work in, in the church, but she did a lot of work in our community. And she was really turned to for advice and for help. So I think that the values that, um, uh, that they had were very um, compelling. And I, and I, so I was brought up in a household where, where the idea that you had responsibilities to other people was part of, of, of how we lived our lives. And um, I then, I was, I loved school. I was good, I was good at school. There were four girls in our family, and um, and I uh, I was the first to go on to higher education. And I came down to London to study law. Um, I, I, it was a, a sort of strange thing to think of doing because well, actually, I was going to say that you know from the west of Scotland, you would think a working well, class all, family, a working class family aspiration. You know, the yeah. percentage of people going to university was at that time eight ten percent, maybe mm. the most, the very the most, most. Uh, but not following. The normal path, but say going to Glasgow University, uh-huh. you decided to go to the bar. And I believe that when you told people you, you were going to London to the bar, they thought you were going to work in a pub. <laughs> a lot of my relatives <laughs> had no, no notion of what this all meant. Um, uh, and talking about the inns of court and so on seemed so, so, so strange to them. But I had a wonderful teacher. I mean, I had one, a whole set of wonderful teachers at the Catholic school that I went to. And, that was Holyrood, uh, was it? That was Holyrood on the mm-hmm. south side. And, uh, and, uh, I did, I was, I was very good at Latin and we had a great Latin master and he encouraged me to do Greek as well. And, uh, and that meant that I got sort of real one-to-one tuition from him. And he was the person who also ran the debating society. And uh, debating, as you know, John, was a great thing in Scotland. We were all sort of encouraged to take part in debating and, um, and uh, I, and I became one of the debaters and, that notion that you had to step your feet into the shoes of somebody else 
was very important. I remember um, the, the death penalty. We were going to have a debate on the death penalty. It was the 60s. And, uh, and um, John Lavelle, who was the teacher, saying to me, um, well, you know, Helena, you'll be in favour of the death penalty and you, Charlie, will be against the death penalty. And I went, no, no, I can't be in favour of the death penalty. I'm not in favour of the death penalty. And my parents were not in favour favor of it. And, uh, and he said, no, 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 that's not debating. Debating is about putting your feet into the shoes of the person who is in favour of it and trying to understand what the arguments are for that. And so I became quite good at debating. And I think he must have been the person who put the suggestion into my mind of doing law. Because I'm told by teachers that I'm still in contact with who are now uh, well into retirement that they, um, that, that they, they remember the issue of law coming up. But I don't remember that particularly. But I do remember... I had a summer job in London um, when I was probably in the fifth form. I came down because one of my sisters was living down in London. And uh, and that gave me this sort of desire to somehow come and spread my wings and study somewhere else. And I got to know um, some people who were students at London School of Economics. I thought that maybe I'd go there. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a m- member of the House of Lords, uh, uh, Lord Wedderburn, yes, who was I a do. great trade union lawyer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I might do trade union law. And that was what really drew me to the idea of coming down to London and studying law, because I got to know some people who were um, law students. And then I, um, it all turned out in a different way. And I didn't become a trade union lawyer. I became a, a, a criminal practitioner at the bar, at the bar, which was at that time had only 5% women uh, practitioners and all very much channeled into doing family law. And so I was um, sort of resistant to that. And uh, I did my pupillage with a very great um, uh, criminal lawyer. And, uh, and so I ended up going down that path. So um, that was how it all started. I suppose... Coming from the west of Scotland, it's, I would say, a disputational environment uh, <laughs> and, and being a bit, a bit aggressive that, that it was natural. So I think we always uh, get engaged in the verbal joisting, yeah, absolutely. which probably helped you. And being, and being quite adversarial in, in yeah. any event. Um, yeah. Certainly, uh, I suppose debate, debating was a way of trying to channel that yeah. for, in mm-hmm. as, as, as when we were young. But I mean, I was brought up. In, you know, in the tenements of the South Side. Um, and then eventually, um, my parents were on the, the corp- Glasgow Corporation waiting list for a council house <laughs> for 16 years. <laughs> so, um, I'm afraid that, um, uh, the, the, the getting of the council house happened rather late in the day. But, um, uh, but that was, that was, that was where we were brought up. But my parents were really fine people. And I can honestly say so that. So you've continued their values? Well, I, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't like to pretend to myself as I was being, a, a, you know, I try to be good mm-hmm. um, uh, as we, uh, and I try to, I try to do things that will make a difference to other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And coming to London and doing the bar then, the type of work that you have uh, undertaken, it would seem as if for your lifetime you've been fighting the establishment. I have. I mean, what happened was that I, I, it became very clear to me that law was about power. I mean, I mean, you know, who make, who gets to make the law and it's the most powerful in any land. And, uh, and so I, I quite early on, um, had a very pr- clear sense 
that law was the product of, of, of the establishment and that, um, that certainly women had very little part in the making of law because law came through parliament or through um, the senior judiciary. And there were no, not very many women in either. I mean, there were no women in the senior judiciary when I went into the law. There were no women in the high, highest courts at all. Rose Halbron became a QC um, and was a rare, a rare bird at that. Um, there was um, uh, um, Lizzie Lane, Elizabeth Lane, became a judge on the High Court, um, but uh, that was in the 60s. You know, it was, it was, it was rare to have women in those senior positions. Um, and, you know, I, it became clear to me that um, law was not was a male product it was it, it was made by men and so i started sort of scrutinizing the way in which law failed women and i saw it in my practice i mean i i went to court with uh, with women who were really um, poor women or women who were uh, coerced into criminal conduct because they were in abusive relationships with men, um, you know, and who were the people who were, you know, handled stolen goods, but only because, you know, that was a method of survival in an environment where they were left with kids and often didn't have other ways of making uh, ends meet. And so I, I started seeing how law failed women. But I wasn't, I mean, women make up a small percentage of the population of people who come through the courts. Um, I, I did a lot of civil liberties work. I was very interested in um, the ways in which, um, that was in the 70s. I, I, I was called to the bar in 1972. And so it was... Um, Early days for, I mean, there were not many women, not many women in my field. Um, and I was very interested in uh, the ways in which communities that were poor suffered. And at that time, we started seeing, of course, quite a lot of racism. Um, there the, the, the really was um, a lot of uh, uh, discrimination against uh, racial minorities. And I acted often for those who were having a bad time. It was also a terrible time for gay men. There were, the gay men were arrested and regularly pursued. There was a vice squad um, that um, was was given the role of you know picking up men in public lavatories and in coming out of gay pubs and things. And they really were um, uh, often framed. Um, there were agent provocateurs amongst the police who basically encouraged um, them to sort of uh, make advances on them, and then they would arrest them. Um, of course, it was an, also a time when there was a sort of growth in the use of drugs. So there were often, um, uh, I was acting for people who were up on drug offences, but, you know, marijuana, nothing particularly serious. And then and I started seeing the ways in which people's civil liberties were being um, abused. And I joined um, and became a member of the National Council of Civil Liberties. I did cases for them. Um, I did a lot of um, uh, cases uh, uh, relating to... Um, I mean, ways in which people were generally um, not, not, not being treated well by the courts. And, uh, and so that was how it started. Then, of course, the Irish Troubles came. Um, they'd started in the late 60s, but, but accelerated through the 70s. And uh, a point came when um, I started being instructed in doing um, some of the major Irish cases. Um, and um, so, you know, racism, uh, um, horrible sexism and, um, and the persecution of the gay community, um, people arrested on demonstrations, all of that was the, the, the fodder of a young lawyer. But then as I went on, I be, was doing more and more serious crime and, um, and terrorism became part of it. 
homicides, women who after years of being battered and abused would perhaps kill their husbands. I there were I think I used to always say that when judges saw me at a, at a, at a, a social gathering and I was talking to their wives, they would get very worried indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, um, but it was a very interesting life. Yeah. And certainly I was challenging the state and often taking on the state because of abuses by, you know, arms of the state, by police, mm-hmm. by um, uh, immigration authorities, um, uh, and ways in which people suffered the consequences of that. And that is the purpose of law, is that the rule of law is all about, you know, we have to keep our, we have to have an, a judiciary which should be much more representative. And I started arguing for that early on, that we needed to see more women making, going th- in, having pathways mm-hmm. into it and being encouraged to, to, to step forward, that we needed to nurture um, minority communities and bring them into the law to make sure that they too could be part of the judiciary. So, you know, the rule of law, I mean, by and large, um, if you don't keep an eye on it, it can very easily be eroded. Yeah. It must have been a bit of a lonely journey. I think I remember uh, you saying that uh, one of the judges, uh, to prove his credentials, told you that he had voted to allow women into the kennel club. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> I, there was a, this incredible, I mean, there was a period, John, when um, uh, in the early 70s, when really... Um, the judges at the Old Bailey were absolutely uh, uh, terrors. I mean, they terrorised uh, the, the, the barristers who came in front of them. And, uh, and they were fairly uniform in their view of the world and, and in what their purpose was, which was, you know, to hold a tight rein on the criminal classes. And uh, I think that we have a very different kind of judiciary now. Um, and I think that's a positive thing. But you would be part of that group that helped change that culture. Well, I mean, I was involved. I mean, I did things like the, um, I was, I was one of the barristers in the Guildford Four Appeal. I mean, mm-hmm. there were miscarriages of justice around that time. And, um, um, of course, I'm old enough to remember it and a lot of, of, of the younger generations don't. Um, but really there were, um, times when, uh, because there was a willingness to believe, believe everything that police officers said, and there was a culture within the police often to kind of, if you, if their gut told them that somebody was guilty, to somehow <laughs> manufacture the evidence or, or maneuver the evidence to make them, uh, to, to, you know, to make it look as though people were guilty. Mm-hmm. There were also forced conf- confessions. I mean, t- bad things went on in police stations, um, when people were being interrogated. And unlike now, where things are videoed, where things are recorded, um, and uh, those the, the possibilities of doing that is very difficult now. Um, it, back in the day, they just used to concoct um, statements and get people to sign them, and uh, and so uh, yeah, I saw a lot of bad stuff in my mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and I think that um, exposing that was really important and being prepared to to speak publicly about it mm-hmm. um, has been very important, I think, in improving. Mm-hmm. What was on? Maybe I could take you to the invitation you had to join the House of Lords. You know, we know it's different, but you know, the image of the House of Lords it could be remote, outdated. It represents the establishment, but here you who've fought against that establishment and fought for change uh, is coming into the House of Lords. How do you explain that to young people that are looking? Well, at it's, this I mean, it's, it's a process. I believe in law. You know, mm-hmm. and I believe in the rule of law and I believe that you have to have an independent judiciary and you have to have an independent legal profession. And so when people say to me things like, how could you represent these terrible people? And there must be times when you represent them and you, and you're, you must know that they're guilty. But that's not 
that's not my role to, to decide whether mm. people are guilty or not. That's for judges and juries. But my role is to make sure that people are well defended, that they're represented. And I'm doing that, you know, for my own protection and my children's protection and for your children's protection, mm. Mm. because that's how you keep a good legal, legal system going. And, and that is an, an important value in a democracy. We've got to protect the rule of law. And so for me, it is, um, I mean, I, I, do, I don't think I ever, um, sounded irrational in what I was saying. What I was saying was, if we want to have good outcomes and we want to have a decent society, you have to have due process. You have to have fair trials. And fairness matters. It's mm-hmm. justice. The law is about more than, than, than just written law. It's mm-hmm. about injecting it with fairness and justice. And nowadays, the rule of law really does mean protecting human rights too. And the moment, I mean, I became a Queen's Counsel when I was 40. That was 1991. Uh, I wasn't, uh, I, I was born in 1950, so I was, I was a, not quite uh, uh, 41. And, um, and that, of course, gave me the position where, um, it was recognized that I was one of the, of, of the senior lawyers who was kind of rated as a good lawyer, um, and ethical. Because, I mean, you know, one of the things they're measuring are, are you a, you know, fly by night or not? But I, I was a serious person. Uh, and so it gave me the opportunity then to, do, to to write books about what I'd seen and my experience and for it to have value. I couldn't be sort of marginalised in what I was mm-hmm. describing in The Failure of Law for Women, for example. And I... Um, and then in the years after I had become a Queen's Counsel, I, I did quite a lot of work. In, I was on a commission on education, um, uh, the National Commission on Education. I, was, I chaired an, uh, a, a commission that looked at further education as a way of delivering opportunities like the ones that I'd had mm-hmm. um, for young people, um, giving people second chances. And the other thing that I, I did was I chaired Charter 88, And Charter 88 was all about Mm -hmm. reform of our constitution. I was very interested in wanting our constitution changed. I wanted to see the European Convention on Human Rights introduced into into the law of our land um, because we'd often, I'd had to take cases to Europe and it took six years to get there. You know, cases around prisoners' rights, cases around um, the use of... um, um, inhumane and uh, uh, treatment in Northern Ireland uh, and in the dealing with terrorism. So um, those those lessons taught me that you had to have a better constitutional set of arrangements. And the Charter 88's whole sort of range of options, which was devolution, um, the introduction of the Human Rights Act, um, the uh, uh, Freedom of Information Act, um, uh, all those areas of reform were in Charter 88. And, uh, and we started persuading um, the Labour Party, which looked as though it might come into government um, in the 90s, um, to, to adopt that as part of its manifesto. And so, um, and it did become Labour's manifesto. And so that was how I ended up in the House of Lords. It was because I had actually worked quite closely with the establishment in saying, if you want to be a modern democracy, then you have to be protecting human rights. You have to give people opportunities to make decisions closer to home. The mm-hmm. assemblies and the parliament in Scotland, and uh, and that you have to also have much greater access to information and to mm-hmm. get rid of the some of the uh, lack of transparency that there was. And social activism was a big issue there, wasn't it? I mean, I remember Lord Woodley telling me that he was involved in Charter eighty eight. So, give us an idea 
of that social activism and well, how I mean, it led to these changes. But the sort of the sort of cases that I had done over the years, where I was acting, you know, whether it, let's 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 talk about um, um, gay rights, um, I, you know, we it was it was very obvious the ways I saw up close the ways in which um, people suffered the consequences of. Um, being fearful of anybody finding out about their sexuality. And I acted for, the, for, for so many men in those kind of cases, and cases where, you know, they really were in fear of losing their jobs and so on if, there was, if it were discovered, even though we had made, made uh, 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 it legal to be a homosexual if there were, you were in a consensual relationship. People were still being harassed and given a bad time. Men coming out of pubs that were gay pubs and so forth. And so, the, the, and then there was the whole business of Section 28 where teachers were frightened to, to even sort of compassionately, um, advise young people. Um, um, uh, it, it was, it was a cruel time. And so some of those things, it was activism that changed them. It was activism um, that changed a whole set of things around women's rights, um, the ways in which women um, were demanding that domestic violence was dealt with in a more serious way. When I started, it was all, you know, six of one and half a dozen of the other. And, um, and courts didn't take it seriously. It wasn't dealt with as if it was real crime. And it blighted women's lives. And so I... Uh, um, those areas be- were really important. And racism, that business where, you know, if you were a black woman and you were experiencing domestic violence or you'd been raped, it was getting justice was even more difficult. And so the ways in which those things intersect was also part of it. So act- activism was really Im- important alongside the business of the, the cases that I was doing in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And often the change came about because of a, an amalgam of real activism getting law changed and then seeing what the bigger, the bigger need was around mm-hmm. having a Human Rights Act. Maybe I could ask you to look at the House of Lords, the case for a second house, but also how the House of Lords has benefited you in your work and what you've done to show what the House of Lords really does. Well, the, the, there's, there's no doubt that um, being in the House of Lords, um, first of all, has given me a platform to raise issues mm-hmm. around um, matters of law that I'm particularly interested in, um, which is really about social justice. I don't think you can ever have justice in the courts without social justice uh, and an understanding of the ways in which our society itself is not necessarily just and bringing together those things so that... You know, I, I, I found that the House of Lords gave me an opportunity to contribute to, uh, uh, to law and the improvement on law and, uh, and putting in amendments to legislation and so on. But it also gave me a platform because it meant that I would be invited to come and speak, um, about my expertise in an area. And so coming in here has meant that I've been able, I think, to contribute, um, particularly around human rights debates. I now, my work has changed, John, because I, I had an interregnum where I stepped out of practice in order to head up an Oxford college and to create at Oxford an Institute of Human Rights, yeah. which was, which I was, uh, which was really important to do. And I've always loved being with the young anyway and, um, being involved in, uh, in education, which I have done since the, you know, for the last 30 years. Um, I want people to have the opportunities that I had to change, to change their lives. But I, I, I now feel that, um, there's no doubt that being in a place where legislation is being created, 
being able to contribute to refining that legislation, reviewing it, contributing uh, to some of that has been important. But it's given a platform to talking about human rights more generally. I now work, I, I came back into practice, and I now head up an Institute of Human Rights for the International Bar Association. I'm doing a lot of international uh, uh, criminal law now, and uh, and uh, and that also means that I come with a, another layer of expertise into the debates that take place in this chamber. Do I think the House of Lords has a role? Absolutely. I'm a firm believer that in the bicameral system. Um, I, I think that reviewing legislation um, is, is vitally important. I, I think it's regrettable that, um, that when I first came in, I think that there was much more reverence for the way in which the House of Lords can make a contribution. And at the moment, something has happened to our political system whereby there's, you know, there's such a large majority in the House of Commons that listening to what the House of Lords is saying happens very rarely um, at the moment. And I hope that that can be recovered at some point soon. Now, part of the recovery of that, I do believe, has to be about reforming the House of Lords. How do I want to see it reformed? I'm actually somebody who's quite interested in the, in the hybrid house because I do think that the expertise that comes from uh, certain um, people, you know, for some of our former judges, people who are scientists, people who are, are um, I mean, today we had a question time in which a very, very brilliant doctor um, um, advised the house and said to the house, making these changes around um, uh, inoculation is vitally important, but explain some of the difficulties that could arise because of the nature of the chemicals involved and how, um, for children, there, there are particular vulnerabilities. Um, but, it, but he was talking as an expert, a believer, and somebody who knows about why inoculation is so vitally important at a time when it's sometimes, you know, we've got anti-vax people yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, going against it. Um, uh, having expertise in here is wonderful. And I don't know that... Um, in the ordinary way, um, that would happen if we just had an, uh, elections here like they have in the Senate in the United States. I also think you can get gridlock, and I've watched it in America. So I think that um, having a house that was mixed, but also where you had representation clearly from the different regions of the United Kingdom yeah. is a useful thing. Um, but I think the house has become much too big. Yeah. When I'm asked about it, particularly when I talk to school people, uh, audiences, whatever, I say that the House of Lords is a different composition from the House of Commons, and that's very important. But it also assists democracy in complementing the work of the House of Commons. And <clears throat> you have been involved in that engagement with the House of Commons, particularly on the Joint Committee on Human Rights. Yeah. What's the House of Lords brought to that? Well, I mean, th th it, it is a marvellous committee um, because you, you, uh, you have representatives of both... And joint committee, houses. meaning House of Commons and House of Lords. It's, a, jo it's a joint committee of the House of Commons and the <coughs> House of Lords, and they're members of both and of all the different parties. And so the, the, the diversity of it 
it really makes a very enriched committee. And I've been on quite a number of committees um, of the of this house. Um, I was very involved in, I've been involved in other, you know, justice and home affairs and so on here in this house. But but I'm back again in the Joint Committee on Human Rights. I was on it once yeah. before. And, and I do think that there's something rather wonderful about bringing together such different sets of experience. The business of being somebody who's, you know, the, pe- the people from the Commons remind us that they have to win this, the, the, the constituents and the general public have to be supporting of some of the recommendations one might be making. And they bring that, that, that business of, on a, week, you know, on a weekly basis, going back to their surgeries and sitting in their constituencies and hearing what the concerns of ordinary people are. That matters because law can't be completely out of touch with sure. the concerns of the public. But, um, but you also get people um, on the, the committee coming from the House of Lords who really bring other area, other kinds of expertise. And uh, I, I just think that um, perhaps there should be more joint committees um, of, of, both, uh, of both houses. But it certainly works on the Human Rights Committee. So if I interpret it right, you're saying that good law is the foundation of a stable society and that the... Scrutiny of that is essential, which the House of Lords performs very well. I, I, I think that I really love uh, the debates that take place in committee stage in this House. I mean, we're, we're having it just now in relation to the Public Order Act. Mm-hmm. And here we are. We've just had a report, um, um, a, a wonderful report that came from one of the members of this House um, uh, about the Metropolitan Police. And one of the things that's um, in that report has been as an expressions of concern and evidence based about um, the failure um, to, for, of, the, of policing with regard to women and the offences that women particularly suffer, sexual offences um, and domestic violence, but also uh, um, the ways in which the, um, the police, um, uh, there's evidence of serious racism within the police, um, as well as homophobia. And, uh, and in addressing that, immediately today in the Public Order Act, there's an amendment going in which is calling uh, into question whether the use of um, stop and search being um, too readily um, um, against the minor- minority communities, how that really feeds distrust in a vital part of the justice system, which is our policing. And so um, it's, it's so interesting to see how this House really can, has the time and puts the effort into um, looking at legislation in a, in, in a much more careful way. And it's, it's not to criticise the House of Commons, it's just that the pressure on the House of Commons is of a different kind and they often don't have the opportunity of that kind of expertise being applied by people who are have been in police in the police forces, people who have been um, practitioner lawyers, um, uh, people like uh, um, Shami Chakrabarti who ran mm. the National Council of Civil Liberties. But many different experiences coming to bear on a piece of legislation. But law matters and we have to get it right. Yeah. And I've had uh, Baroness Louise Casey in my office chatting away about a number of issues, but uh, particularly the eloquent report on the Met. And she made the point to me that the police force, again, like social activism, there has to be an engagement with society and taking people along with it. And one of our members, Baroness Alone, uh, has an article in the papers, in the Financial Times, saying that the Met 
could learn from the police reforms in, in Northern, Northern Ireland. Ireland. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I agree with Baroness alone about that. I mean, I think that you, you, there's no doubt that um, uh, policing in Northern Ireland was very distrusted mm-hmm. by a whole section sure. of the community, as we know. The, the, the Catholic community was very distrustful of the RUC. And the reforms that took place meant an opening up of the police to many, you know, many people who, you know, Catholic officers joined and, uh, and also much more connection with the community and interaction with the community. Mm-hmm. And that's how trust is built. Um, and it's about, tran- you know, it's about being transparent. It's about openness and it's about about you know having much better links between you know parts of the community that just were so alienated from policing and that's going to have to happen here in in london but but other parts of the united kingdom can learn from Mm. it too i did a report recently in scotland into misogyny Mm -hmm. and uh, for the scottish parliament for the scottish parliament and it was very interesting because Part of that also involved um, having um, evidence from p- police. And women police officers asked for anonymity so that they could talk about the misogyny that they too experienced um, mm. as, as uh, police officers in Scotland. So it's not, it's not confined to the Met. These are problems um, throughout the land. And, uh, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're social problems and they exist in all of our societies, you know. But we have to seek ways to address them. And, um, I do think that, um, the quality of debate in this house is, is, is really exemplary. I want to just tell you, because I vacation regularly in the United States and uh, I'm very friendly with, um, a woman, uh, who's a political scientist at Harvard. And her work is on parliaments around the world. And she does, um, a very complex, uh, study of, uh, and across a matrix of what produces um, the best quality of debate and uh, and the research that goes into the speeches that people make and the reliance on statistics and on good evidence rather than simply rhetoric. And the House of Lords comes out best of any parliamentary chamber in the world. Oh, get me that report. I'll have to get you that report. <laughs> but but uh, I want you to take you on to social media because here we have uh, global companies going across national borders and there's a huge issue to tackle there. Now, Barnes Kidron has been involved in that. Barnes Morgan of Coates has been involved in that. You have been in- involved in that area. What can we as a House of Lords do to, to progress that, albeit uh, some progress has been made? Well, f- as far as I'm concerned, this is about regulation. There really has to be regulation of those platforms um, that, uh, that, that really... Um, social, that social media rely upon. And they have to be regulated. And there has to be consequences and there has to be serious consequences, uh, financially, but also in terms of, uh, what the, the meaning of, uh, of breaches will be for those who run those companies. There has to be a, a, you know, there has to be a sense that law will come down heavily on those companies, but also the people who run them. And so I was quite in favour of the idea that, um, some of the people who run them might have to bear the consequences and, May even face imprisonment if they're um, inflicting pornography on our, on our, on our children without in any way attempting to to restrain that. 
Um, most of these platforms, I'm sure that Baroness Kidron would have would have said this, but um, m- most of these platforms were not made with children in mind, of course, and they were and and of course monetizing them, making them financially viable, has u- meant the use of algorithms, which mean that all of us now um, have been turned into product-producing um, people for the for the the companies that are going to benefit from the advertising and from the targeting of their materials on certain parts of our population and uh, and that has that has serious consequences but it not only has serious consequences for the well-being of our children and indeed even for adults but also on our democracy because we know that those algorithms are now being used to basically pound us with uh, mm-hmm. information which is not always truthful or honest and which is um, attempting to to affect outcomes in, in elections so the, the the consequences of all of this is very real and I, I, I think the only way is that law has to get get with the program, and uh, and we and we're often lagging behind in it. And I think that it will be challenging, but we have to regulate it. And um, unfortunately, it's a time we're living in a time when we a lot of our political class um, are again regulation. They don't like the idea of regulation um, when it enters into the commercial or into the market. And I'm afraid that the marketplace and its invisible hand is not working very well in this arena. Listening to you, I feel that the soft power of the House of Lords has a global reach. For example, Mm. with your campaign for the Uyghurs in China, for Mm. which you were censored by China, and also your work now on the Ukraine war crimes inquiry. Yes, I'm now doing a lot. Most of my work now is international, and uh, um, I mean, for example, the United Nations, uh, the rapporteur on extrajudicial killing, um, uh, Agnes Kalamar, in- investigated the death of uh, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Do you remember the journalist, yeah, Saudi Arabian journalist, mm-hmm. who was murdered in the most atrocious way inside an embassy building in Turkey? And um, I was uh, invited to go with her as part of her legal team because of my criminal law experience um, to uh, uh, meet with um, the intelligence agencies in Turkey and with the prosecuting authorities in Turkey to see the evidence that they had that that crime had taken place, that um, a man had been murdered there, um, and uh, and that people should be held responsible. And uh, it was uh, it was a shocking case, and um, in, and I'm sure that as a result of that, um, um, I'm never going to be a welcome person in uh, Saudi Arabia because we were very clear in our criticism of um, the authorities and the ruling. Uh, authorities in uh, Saudi Arabia who had undoubtedly, in my view, commissioned that killing. Um, and so sometimes doing one's work makes one, makes one a target for um, countries which are now, the, the long arm of countries is reaching out beyond even what they do inside their own jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that's concerning us as international lawyers. Um, you know, the, the, the business of China targeting some of the, our parliamentarians here, um, and s- sanctioning us so that we can't, um, I can't, I can't go to Hong Kong. I can't go to, uh, um, certainly I can't travel in China, but I'm also experiencing, um, all sorts of interference with my own technology. So for example, I have never had a Twitter account, um, that I've used. And suddenly I find myself, uh, having a Twitter account. Um, and it's, um, uh, telling the world how wonderful China 
Helena is. And Helena Kennedy um, uh, and my Twitter handle is clearly a product of um, uh, the long arm of China. Um, um, but my colleagues in my chambers who are acting, for example, in cases involving Hong Kong, acting for Jimmy Lai, the, the um, Hong Kong, um, uh, and who's a British citizen, let it be said, um, but who runs a, um, a, ran a media organization in Hong Kong. He's now in prison. He's facing serious charges under the national security law that China has introduced into Hong Kong. And um, the lawyers who are in my chambers who are acting for them have all been um, uh, targeted by China. Um, they, are, they receive death threats from people in China. They receive threats of rape, uh, the women. Um, they, I mean, really, thre- and threats to their children. And so some of this is terrible. Um, I, I've been, I'm being described now um, inside Chinese newspapers as an enemy of the, the people. Uh, but, um, you know, the, 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 I think it is a source of concern to, to us all that um, there are countries who are, um, you, you know, they don't confine their ways of, um, of, uh, of, of harassing people and um, uh, they, they don't confine it to, to their own borders. The, the Uyghur inside China, John, are being, um, are being subjected to serious atrocity crimes. And uh, the women are being forced into sterilization and, and abortion. Um, the, uh, the, the torture of people in those concentration camps, forced labor, the evidence is very clear, destruction of mosques and uh, burial grounds. We know that from aerial photography. Um, and, uh, and we hear the evidence because there are people who've managed to escape and the accounts that they give, particularly coming from female relatives of, of people describing what's happening is really terrible. So, you know, um, being able to stand up in the house and be, to, to let the house, inform the house and parts of our parliament of what's going on is important. The business of just now, um, in Ukraine, um, only last week I met with, um, a woman who was, um, one of the midwives who um, was in Mariupol uh, for the um, delivering babies and it was totally destroyed. And, uh, and this midwife, um, you know, she delivered 27 babies during that bombardment and, and she was in the, the um, uh, hospital delivering these babies. And afterwards, many, many people were, were killed. Um, the children, she was put onto a bus with many children, and she was transported into uh, Russia. And in fact, she had a mobile phone and was able secretly to phone her husband. And, uh, and so efforts were made by the Ukrainian government to get to exchange her. So she got out. She's now in Estonia. Um, but she was able to testify to the fact that children were taken out of there. They had no documentation or anything, and she didn't. And she was then parted from them. Um, we're talking about children who just happened to be put into the bus that she was on, and uh, and those children have disappeared into into Russia. We were um, involved in giving evidence of all of that to um, the UN's investigation um, and to the um, the International Criminal Court. I mean, some of this stuff that's going on is really appalling. And so the warrants that have just been issued by the International Criminal Court, um, uh, you know, we've known about this, but the, the, um, the, the taking of children um, uh, for over a year now. And, uh, and it's shocking because often the mothers have been killed. There are fathers on the, on the front line who, who are, uh, you know, the, the demoralization of knowing that your children are missing where you're not hearing from them. Grandparents looking for those children. 
um, it's, it, we're talking about serious numbers of children who've disappeared mm -hmm. into, into Russia. So could I conclude then that the House of Lords gives you a channel to ensure maybe your primary aim of ensuring good law and uh, also uh, that it gives you a platform globally uh, to engage and there is a soft power element to that with positive benefits for uh, other people in the world. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that just now, um, um, last week, um, the British Parliament entertained ministers of justice from around the world, 40 different countries. And, uh, and uh, we were meeting with the Prosecutor General from Ukraine came and, uh, and uh, our Attorney General and so on were, were present, um, as were indeed um, lawyers in the House of Lords meeting with um, all those ministers of justice to talk about the importance of getting the law right in relation to um, the trial of war crimes. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think that our influence in all of this is vitally important. And, uh, and there's no doubt that the House of Lords plays a, an important role in that. They read, other countries read uh, the, the reports that come out of House of Lords committees, um, and particularly around justice issues, and particularly around issues of human rights. Okay, and that was fascinating. It Thank was you very much. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you.